want to invite you to take your Bibles. Let's turn them uh, to two places, if you would. Uh, first, uh, James chapter 4. That's where we continue our series. And then also go ahead and find your place as I'm speaking in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, because we'll go there at some point this morning as well. Now, Paul's last week, I didn't want to get into verse 5 and wanted to wait until this week because I believe that verse 5 is the most difficult verse in uh, the entire letter from James to, uh, to interpret. You've got to also consider the fact that the earliest Greek manuscripts, uh, they didn't have things like we do in our Bible. They didn't have uh, paragraph divisions. They didn't have uh, verse separations. Uh, there was actually no punctuation with Greek manuscripts uh, and no uh, capitalized letters or any of that. And so what we have before us is the result of original translators' interpretation. And I want you to understand that there's not a single translation that gets everything perfectly correct. There are some translations that are overwhelmingly better than others, but not a single one gets it right on every single occasions. And so with that in mind, I want us to begin. Let's pick up with verse number five. Verse number five says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this is a difficult passage to interpret for, for a few reasons. First of all, it's found in that statement, scripture says, when it says, Scripture says, and then you have quotations around something, the natural tendency is you want to go and find whatever's being quoted somewhere in Scripture. But you're never going to find this quotation anywhere in Scripture. It's not found. And so what do we do with that? How do we handle that? I handle it, and I think the most likely explanation is that James isn't quoting a specific scripture verse rather he's paraphrasing either one or two uh, verses of scripture it would be the equivalent of me saying to you i mean don't you know that god's word says that he loves you that he gave his son to die for you that to believe in him that you'll have life well we know that the scriptures tell us that but those exact words aren't found in scripture in that quotation we know like places of John 3.16 says God loved the world so much that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him has eternal life uh, but should not perish but has eternal life. So we know the concept's there but the actual quote that I said scripture says that isn't there. So I think that's what James is doing. He's trying to paraphrase one or two verses of scripture that he has learned in his lifetime. Now, we don't know what verses of Scripture that he's paraphrasing until we understand the meaning of what's being quoted. So, so go back to the verse. Again, it says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, like, what does that exactly mean? Well, maybe the very literal translation will help you out. A very literal translation of that verse would be, or thank you that vainly the Scripture says to envy yearns the Spirit which was made to dwell in you. 
Yeah. That help you? Anyone? Clear as mud. Yeah, that's like, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, here's the thing, right? Uh, even our varying translations of the Scripture that we have in front of us don't agree on how to interpret this verse. I'll point it out to you. I want you to look at your Bible, look at your verse, number five, and in there, find that word spirit. You find the word spirit? Now, now check this out. How many of you, that word spirit has a capitalized S? Capital S, raise your hand. Yours says spirit, capital S. Most likely you have a New American Standard uh, Bible or the New King James Version. Now everybody else, look at yours. I'm assuming since you didn't raise your hand, yours is a lowercase s. But so that you'll participate and engage with me, if yours is a lowercase s, raise your hand. Awesome. You probably either have the new NIV, uh, the New Living Translation, uh, the ESV from which I'm reading from, or you might even have the King James Version, which is interesting. King James has lowercase, New King James has capital S. And so how you handle that word is significant because are we talking about the Holy Spirit or are we talking about the human spirit? And then other questions that we have to figure out, is the spirit to be taken as the subject of the verb yearn, or is it the object of the verb yearn? And then the word jealously, is that word jealously to be interpreted as a sin, as a, an unrighteous desire, or is it to be interpreted as a, a righteous type of jealousy? And so there are numerous translations are possible. Many scholars and translators believe that God is the subject of the verse. And so they would read it as God is the one who yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us. Now if this is true, then this could be a loose quote, quotation from the Song of Moses that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is described as being jealous of Israel because she's followed after other gods. In fact, man, this, this interpretation would fit very well within James. Because like Israel, James's readers have committed adultery with the gods of this age. That's back to verse number 4. And so like a, a jealous husband, in, in, in the best sense of the phrase, God will not tolerate such unfaithfulness. And so that seems like that's, a, that's an appropriate interpretation for what's happening. But there is a major problem with that type of interpretation. And the major problem is seen in that word jealously. The Greek word that's being used here is found in a total of nine places in the New Testament. And if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament... That's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is they took the Old Testament and they, they translated it into Greek, right? So if you look for that word that's being used here in, in James chapter 4, verse number 5, you'll only find it in eight other places in the New Testament. You'll not find it in the Old Testament at all, as far as I can tell, and you definitely won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament as describing a characteristic of God. So all we have to base this word on is to look at the other 
places in Scripture where this word is found. And here's where it gets rather interesting. Of the nine places that it's found in the New Testament, only one place is it ever translated as jealously. That's in this, translate, this verse right here. All eight of the other places where this word is found translates that's wor- that word as envy. Now for those of you that are interested, I'm going to give you those references so that you can look at them later at your choosing. But you'll find that word in Matthew chapter 27, verse number 18. Mark chapter 15, verse number 10. Romans chapter 1, verse number 29. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 21. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 15. 1 Timothy 6, verse number 4. Titus 3, verse 3, and then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, I want to help you out. I want to show you a couple of these references on the screens here on the stage because I want you to, to see that word in the context of how it's being used in every other place that this word is found. And so the first one comes from Romans chapter 1, verse number 29. It says that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Uh, they are gossips. So, so this word envy, that Greek word, carries with it the, this, this idea of malice or, or ill will towards something or, or someone else. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. So I believe that the envy that's being talked about with this word is, 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 the, is, is sin. It's an unrighteous um, response. It, it's not something that we should engage in. That's why I don't think that we can attribute this characteristic to God because it's humans, not God, who can commit the, the, the sin of envy. Ill will, malice, which means I don't think that's the best translation or interpretation to the verse. I think there's a better interpretation. And so I think the better interpretation is to see that the human spirit is what is prone to the sin of envy. So if this were the case, then what's being quoted or being referred to as far as Scripture says could be a paraphrase of Noah's story that's found in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis 6 verse 5 and chapter 8 verse number 21, God says of man that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so in Noah's day, the people had rejected God's Spirit. And you see that in Genesis chapter 6 verse number 5 or verse number 3. And so, because they rejected God's Spirit, God ultimately uh, exacts His punishment and, and destroys them. And so, James's readers had also rejected God by befriending the world. In verse number 2, we see that they lust and they jealously strive for what their evil hearts desire. And so, they too are under judgment. So however, after the flood, God, God, God showed His mercy. 
And so God's mercy and grace are available today for those who will humble themselves in order to receive it. And so God gives life or spirit to humanity, and then we incline that spirit to evil. Jealousy is a part of our human nature. Not the nature that God gave us in the garden, but the nature that's a result of the fall, the sin that came from the garden. So I believe that James is trying to parallel a point that he made in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he tells us just as no human being has the ability to tame their, their mouths or their tongue, so it is that we ourselves, we cannot control the jealous nature that's within us on our own. We need help. And we have to have help from an outside source. And so even though God is the author of all true pleasures, and, and desires for us to enjoy life, the illicit tugging strings of self-centered hedonism constantly pull at us. And many of us, quite frankly, have become friends of a fallen world order. And because we're, we're friendly with the world order that puts us as, as enemies of God. So what are we to do? Well, thankfully, it doesn't stop here. There's more, because look at verse number 6. It says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, God gives the help that our human nature needs, because He gives more grace. Now, now please understand that He's not talking about saving grace in this verse uh, because uh, every believer already possesses saving grace and never forget that james is writing this letters to a group of believers so he's not talking about saving grace what he's literally talking about is more grace or greater grace greater grace is god's gracious supply to live as we should in this fallen world. That's the greater grace that he's speaking about. What God gives us in order that we can live rightly in the midst of this perverse and crooked world. As St. Augustine put it, God gives what God demands. And here we see he gives more grace. And so where there's frustration, even confusion, uh, surrounding verse number 5, I don't think there's any frustration or confusion here in verse number 6. I mean, look at it. There is always, for the believer, more grace available. And to me, this is without a doubt one of the most comforting passages of all Scripture. This verse means that there is always grace available. There's, all, there's an endless supply to God's grace. There's always grace available to us. No matter what our situation is, no matter what our need is, there is more grace available. And the uh, writer of Hebrews, he captures this. And look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let us draw confidently so that we can find the mercy and the grace to help us in our time of need. I forget where I read it this past week, but I, I came across the statement and I loved it. It said that for daily need, oh, there's daily grace. For, for sudden need, He provides sudden grace. For overwhelming need, He gives overwhelming grace. I mean, anybody here need some grace today? I mean, He has it available to us. But you got to understand that this gift is not for everyone. It's only for the humble. And James makes this clear by quoting uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse number 34, where it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So whatever questions remain unresolved in verse number 5, there's no question about the clear truth that's contained within verse number 6. One of those truths is that God opposes the proud. That word opposes is a strong word. It's a military term that, that's talking about a, to battle against. And so the cure for conflict with God is a humble spirit which is rewarded by God's unmerited favor. Well, that's a beautiful reality. And thankfully, James tells us the proper attitude that we must have in order to receive more grace in, into our lives. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So James reveals the proper attitude for receiving God's grace with a series of imperatives. First, we are to submit. Again, another military term that he uses. And he tells us that we are to submit to God. What I love about James is not only does he tell us what we're to do, he also tells us how we're to do it. And so James starts by giving us both the negative and a positive expression connected to submission. On the negative side, the negative expression is resist. Resist the devil, and the positive expression is to draw near to God. So, so what he tells us to do is to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That word resist, again, another military word, which means to stand against, as in uh, combat, as in war. And so, as believers... Check it out. We're not supposed to be arguing and fighting with each other. We're to be standing together against the enemy, ready to engage in a battle with him, not with each other. And so the combative language that James uses, these military terms, I believe it suggests a parallel to what Paul gives to us in Ephesians chapter 6. That's why I have, you, uh, have your Bibles there. Let's look at that together. Because here we're told how to prepare to resist the devil. Ephesians chapter 6. If you haven't found it yet, it's on the screen. Verse number 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers 
over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I mean, these are our weapons. Truth, righteousness, peace, salvation, the Word of God. You and I can stand against the devil if we will use and wear the armor that God gives to us. And so James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's another half to it. Verse 8 says to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'm telling you, there's only one more, one other view that is more welcoming than the backside of the devil, and that view is the face of God. And so this is the greatest privilege in all the world that we would have the ability to approach and to draw near to our Heavenly Father. I mean, just think of it as believers, we have the ability to approach God and to talk to Him at any time at any place, for any amount of time, the door to God's presence is always open and available. I mean, how awesome is that? And when you enter into the presence of God, seeking to spend time with Him, drawing near to Him, I promise you, the Father isn't looking at His watch thinking, when is this conversation ever going to end? He longs and He loves to spend time with His children. Never be rejected by Him. Provided that you approach Him in the right manner. Drawing near to God is, is much more than submitting to Him. Although submission to Him is part of it. Drawing near means to draw ever so near to get as close as possible, to get right up next to Him. How do we do this? How do we draw near to God? I'll give you a couple of things. First of all, you draw near to Him by prayer, through prayer. Remember, He longs to, to, to spend time in communication with us. So one of the ways we draw near to Him is by prayer. We ask God for, for His strength, we, we ask Him for, for, for power. We ask Him for, for wisdom, for, for understanding that, that we might receive mercy, guidance, grace. But as we try to draw near to God in prayer, please don't ever underestimate the importance of being still and being quiet in the presence of God. 
So much of our time is spent always talking that we never stop long enough so that we can hear what God's trying to say to us. And when I say to listen for His voice, because His word should always take us back to His word. So we pray to Him, and we're still before Him, and we're seeking wisdom and understanding and that He might point us back to His Word. So one of the ways that we draw near to Him is through prayer. And then we also draw near to Him by reading and reflecting upon His written Word. So keep your, your focus upon God. Draw near to Him as near to Him as you possibly can. And then note the glorious promise that He gives to us. That God will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. He will embrace you. He will seek to strengthen you. And if you need proof of that, then I just point us back to Hebrews chapter 4, 4 again. Hebrews 4. This time I'll back up a verse and read verse 15 and 16. Verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <laughs> Come on, church. There it is. I mean, it's right there. If you will go after God, He will go after you. Man, I think that if we would draw ourselves to God, I believe that if we will take an inch towards God, He'll step towards us. Man, step towards God, I believe He'll run towards you. But I want you to know that drawing near to God is conditional. There is a person who God does not allow to draw near unto Him. So who is that person? Well, that's the person with unclean or sinful hands. That's the person with an impure or wavering heart. So to be clear, we must do two things before we can draw near to God. Look at verse number 8. It continues. It says to cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Man, up to, to this point, James has been kindly referring to his correspondence with the words, um, my brothers, but now, we've already seen last week, now he goes from my brothers to, hey, you adulteresses, you sinners, you double-minded. I mean, James, in love, is telling them exactly not what they want to hear, but he's telling them exactly what they need to hear. So he uses the terms to get their attention. And so the, the hands and the heart, they, they represent the whole person. It represents both the inward intent and the outward action. So here James gives the external and the internal aspects of the same action. So the external is to wash your hands, you sinners, and the internal part is to purify your hearts, you double-minded. I want you to think back with me a little bit because in the beginning of the summertime, we were working through a series uh, through the Beatitudes. And there we saw how the Lord calls us to a single-minded allegiance unto Himself. That God wants us to be completely devoted unto Him. 
And when we got to the particular beatitude that's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8, there Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. We understood that the pure in heart means those that are single-minded in their devotion unto God. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So it is the heart of single-minded devotion to God that He expects from all of us. You see, the depth of devotion of what is being called for, you see those in James's words when he says to purify your hearts. In the Bible, the heart includes emotions. It includes the will of a person. The heart is the totality of our ability to think, to feel, to decide, and to act. What Proverbs 4 says, above everything else guard your heart because it affects everything you do or out of the overflow of it is the wellspring of life that's why the heart is the entire inclusion of a person's ability to think feel decide and to act so so purifying our hearts means not only should our minds be solely focused upon god but so should our feelings and our actions So James is talking about having more than just an external purity of behavior. He's talking about having an internal purity of the soul. So so in order for us to have an internal purity of the soul, we must be willing to deal with sin in a serious manner. That's how we get to verse number 9. Verse 9 says, Be wretched, mourn, weep, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So many of us misinterpret this. So we're always walking around with sad looks on our faces. That's not what he's talking about here. While verse 9 can almost sound depressing, I think it's actually beautiful. Because here we're called to see and to treat our sin in a serious manner. Be wretched. That word describes the sorrowfulness that we ought to experience when we sin. Another way to say it would be to be utterly devastated because of your sin. And then the word mourn. Mourn is talking about an inner grief. And then weep is is talking about an external expression of that inner grief. And so mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Saying that those who live with friendship with the world do not view their sin as as a big deal. But James is telling us not to be so trivial in, in, in aspect or in relationship to how we treat or how we handle sin. Rather, we shouldn't handle it or think of it casually. We should seriously mourn and grieve over sin in our lives. We should treat sin as the big deal that it actually is. Let me ask you something. When is the last time that you grieved over your sin? When is the last time that you mourned or you weeped over the things that are being done in your life that don't please the Father. 
may you know that, that true relief and perfect peace comes in verse number 10. Because in verse number 10, he says to humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. When we humble ourselves before God, we don't have to pick ourselves up because He'll do it for us. And God will raise up your spirit. God will give you joy if you will humble, humble yourselves before Him in His presence. So in thinking about your life, in thinking about where you're at in your relationship with the Father today, my question for you is, will you humble yourselves before God today? We're not to wait passively for this humbling to somehow happen in life. We're not to wait for, for someone else to come along and, and humble us for us. Uh, we're not to wait for the circumstances of life to, to bring us to our knees. Rather, self-humbling is our Christian duty. We must be willing to take an inventory of our sinfulness and our weaknesses. And when we do, we must bow in total submission unto God and hand it over to the Father. My question for you is, will you humble yourselves before God? Will you submit your life unto Him? Will you give Him your dreams? Will you give Him your future? Will you give Him your everything? I hope the answer to that is yes. Because if you will, I'm going to tell you, get ready. Get ready for God to pour out grace upon grace upon grace into your life. Get ready for God to give you what you need so that you can do and live the way that he's called you to do and to live. May we all be recipients of the grace that God longs to give to us. But may we also know that there's only one way for us to receive that grace, and that is through a humble, humble spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that during this time that we would not be casual about our sin. That we will not be indifferent towards the ways in which we displease You with our attitudes and our actions. That in this moment of invitation, Father, that Your Spirit would move among us, that we would confess sins, that we would repent, that we would submit ourselves unto You to do whatever it is that You've called us to do right here, right now, so that we can experience and receive the grace that You long to pour out upon us. Be pleased. Be honored. Be glorified. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.